Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth, the Old Testament. This morning we'll look at Ruth chapter 2. Well, it's been quite a weekend for sports fans around the Linden area. Washington State's thrill of victory. Linden's agony of defeat. But we love the games, don't we? Win or lose, we love them. In fact, many people think that uh, the reason sports is so great uh, is that in, in, a, in a single sporting event, you have a, uh, all of life in a microcosm right here in this game. Actually, it's not just in sporting events that that happens. Uh, we have days like that in our life where like our whole life is summed up in this day. This is, this is my life, what happened today. I think that's why you have in chapter 2 of Ruth. Uh, chapter 1 ends with the beginning of the barley harvest. That's the last phrase. The barley harvest was beginning. Chapter 3 begins with the end of the barley harvest. Chapter 1 ends with the beginning. Chapter 3 begins with the end of the barley harvest. I don't know how long the harvest went. Actually, barley and wheat both, it sounded like, uh, later in this chapter. A lot of days in between here. Chapter 2 is about one day. One day. One very significant day. For in this day, uh, we have something characteristic of the whole period, the whole story of Ruth. In this day, we have explained how the rest of the book came to happen. In this day, we have the great turning point in the life of Ruth and Naomi. It's a significant day we're going to look at today in chapter 2. <clears throat> well, let me read it. Ruth chapter 2. <clears throat> now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, She is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went out into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't, and, and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to, not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you <clears throat> for what you've done. 
May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Well, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to, to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. And so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to a benifa. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did, you, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working, in whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the lean and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. And so Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, this is a wonderful story, and you can read it and understand it just like I can read it and understand it, so I don't intend to retell you the story today. But I think that there are a couple of crucial truths that are woven through this story that I'd like to make mention of, and I'd like for us to uh, walk away here from here um, with these truths in mind and not just a nice story. The first is this, <clears throat> that God works in the details. God works in the details. <clears throat> we actually have a little uh, phrase, a little colloquialism that says to the contrary. I don't know if you're familiar with this phrase, you know, these things change from one part of the country to another, but do you know, know the phrase, the devil is in the details? Have you ever heard that phrase? The idea is that no matter how wonderful and noble your plan is, when you start trying to work out all the details of it, there's going to be nothing but trouble. The devil's in the details. It's one thing to have a great plan, but the details are something else. Ah, but this text demonstrates that God owns the details, not the devil. He does not work his plan in spite of these details. He works in the details themselves. This chapter begins with a, with a familiar uh, literary device, a little writer's uh, a trick, perhaps. In verse 1, we readers are introduced to Boaz. He's a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. He's part of that clan. He's a man of some standing in the community, uh, a man of some prominence and wealth. And we are introduced to him. But it quickly becomes clear that Ruth, has never heard of him. And that Naomi has no contact with him. 
though Boaz will prove to be the leading man in this story. They're not aware of him at all, but the readers are introduced to him. So why does the author do that? Why does he introduce us to Boaz, although he's not a factor in Ruth or Naomi's life yet? Well, the author is about to unfold what appears to Ruth and Naomi to be a chance encounter between Boaz and Ruth. But the author wants us to see that none of this is indeed by chance. It's God's plan. God is working in the details. Well, the story begins with Ruth going out to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. God's law had provided for this in the book of Leviticus, again in Deuteronomy. When a farmer harvested his fields, he was to leave the corners standing. When he picked his vineyard, he was to go through it once and pick it as good as you could, but he was not to send his servants through again to make sure that you got every last grape. Instead, the poor people were allowed to come through after the harvest was over and pick up whatever grain, whatever fruit was left over. And thus God, in his wonderful wisdom, provided both work and food for the poor people. Now Ruth may or may not have known what God's law said about gleaning. She wasn't an Israelite, she didn't, wasn't raised in the law. But she knew that she and Naomi needed food, and uh, they were penniless, and she had to do something. And so whether she knew of this procedure or whether it was her own idea, she said, I'm going out to find a field and see if I can follow the harvesters along and find some food. And she did. Well, according to verse 3, as she went looking for a place where they were harvesting that she could, uh, could glean, she ended up working in a field belonging to Boaz. And the language that tells us that is very interesting. It says in verse 3, as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. According to the experts in the Hebrew language in which this was written, both the verb here, which is translated to happen, and the noun, which normally means accident or chance, both the verb and the noun team up to describe this as an accidental event. In other words, the author says something like, she went out and quite by accident, she finds herself in the field of Boaz. Now when you're writing something, there are different ways to make your point, to emphasize your point. You can just keep saying it again and again and again until it's hammered in people's minds. That's how I preach, you know. Point one, point one, point one, point one, and just keep repeating. But another way to emphasize the point is to talk all around it, but never say it. Until after a while, the, the, the listeners are saying it, wondering why you won't, you know. The book of Esther is this way. The book of Esther talks about all this string of coincidences and all how this worked and that worked and this wild, crazy coincidence worked out. And in the whole book of Esther, God is never mentioned one time. His name is never raised. But by the time you get to the end of the book of, Raise, of, of Esther, and, and it's going, what a coincidence, what a coincidence, what a coincidence. You're saying, no, it's not a coincidence. God is there. Well, that's kind of what the writer does here. He paints this as if this meeting by Ruth and Boaz is just quite by accident. But the reader knows better. 
We were introduced to Boaz back in verse 1. And as we read it, we're saying, accident my foot, God is working in those details. And of course, that's only the beginning of the accidental details in this account. Boaz, who has many fields, happens to come to this field this day that Ruth is gleaning. Boaz happens to come to the field when Ruth is there. She's not over sitting in the shelter. It's not before she arrived. She happens to be. Boaz, who's a busy man with lots of servants and lots of workers and lots of fields, happens to notice that there's a person he doesn't recognize out in his field. Boaz happens to take the time to say, who is that, by the way? And when he hears, Boaz happens to have heard of her before and know something about her history and how she came with Naomi back from the land of Moab. And Boaz happens to uh, be concerned about that. One thing after another, these things just happen. But you see, it's not happenstance at all. It's how God works. God works in the details. This is a simple truth, but it's a profound truth that needs to be deeply embedded in our hearts. Do you know how many details of life the Bible claims that God works in? Let me give you a little, a little survey. God works in the details of the physical universe, the Bible says calls the stars by name. Controls the galaxies. The moon, the sun. The snow. The rain. The drought. Everything about the weather. The crops. The foliage that grows. He works in the details of the animal world. Causes them to bear young. Provides food. Gives them breath. Takes the breath away. He works in the details of the nations. He raises up leaders. He pulls down leaders. He works in the details of our lives. He forms our bodies in the womb. He gives us breath. He takes our breath away. He brings success. He causes us to fail. He oversees our free acts. He oversees even our sinful acts. Well, there's no end to God's working in the details of life. Heidelberg Catechism says it so beautifully. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, and rain and drought, and fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and, uh, and sickness, prosperity, and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. God works in the details. I know this isn't a new truth. We saw it repeatedly in Genesis, didn't we? We saw it in the life of Abraham. We saw it in the life of Jacob. We especially saw it in the life of Joseph and all of the terrible details of his life, and God was working right there in all of them. And it's the testimony of the rest of the scriptures. It's, a, it's what the life of Moses is about. It, we see it in the life of David. We see it in the life of Daniel. We see it in the New Testament apostles. 
And here it certainly explains the story of Ruth, God quietly working out his perfect plan, though it looks like it's by accident, he's working in the details. And how far do we want to press that truth? Slightly over a century ago, Abraham Kuyper, the theology professor, journalist, author, prime minister of the Netherlands, founded the Free University of Amsterdam. And in his inaugural lecture there, he made this now famous uh, statement. He says, There is not an inch in the whole of human existence of which Christ the sovereign over all does not cry, It is mine. That's how far we push it. Not an inch that he does not own. God owns the details. As the great contemporary hymn writer Margaret Clarkston put it into song, we sing this sometimes, O oh, Father, you are sovereign in all the worlds you made. Your mighty word was spoken and light and life obeyed. Your voice commands the seasons and bounds the ocean shore, sets stars within their courses, stills the tempest's roar. O oh, Father, you are sovereign in all affairs of man. No powers of death or darkness can thwart your perfect plan. All chance and change transcending, supreme in time and space, you hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. Well, this morning I challenge in the words of the prophet Isaiah, why do you say, why can you complain, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and he does not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He controls the details. I don't know what pieces of your life seem to be outside of his control today. I don't know where you feel as if some accident has ruined his good plans, or where you might think that some good fortune has occur occurred without him, but this morning I remind you that there is no such detail in this world. There is nothing which has escaped his attention. He owns the details of your life. Having made that point about God's sovereign provenance, let me immediately back away from any suggestion that I'm talking about a static deterministic view of God in which we are mere puppets on a string and our choices and our actions mean nothing. Oh no, exactly the opposite is true. Our choices and our actions have great meaning because the sovereign God who controls all the details said so. He gave us, gave them meaning. Which brings us to the second thing I think we see in the story of Ruth. And that is that God not only works in the details, but God works through your faithfulness. God works through your faithfulness. As I said before, I don't know a lot of Hebrew. I know uh, just enough to be dangerous. <clears throat> Actually, just enough to understand what people are talking about when they talk about the language in which the Old Testament was written, but not enough to, to disagree with the, the experts. 
But there's one Hebrew word that I've been in love with for years, and I've told you before, and I'll probably tell you again, I'm going to tell you this morning, and that's the word hesed. Actually, it starts with a hard H, hesed. My Hebrew professor said, you learned to, to speak Hebrew by listening to the camel spit. You kind of have to, you know, okay, chesed, okay? It's that hard kind of word. I want every one of you to learn this word because, not, you need, not that you need to know Hebrew, because there's no English word that covers the meaning of this word, and it's used many, many times in Scripture, and is a wonderful word. It's translated loving kindness, or mercy, or faithfulness, or grace, or kindness, uh, lots of different ways. The word hesed actually means covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness, not like a labor contract where you kept the contract legally and did what you, uh, what you signed that you were going to do. Not that kind of covenant faithfulness, but loving family loyalty, even when it's not deserved. Thus sometimes it's translated mercy or grace, as well as faithfulness and kindness, and always love. Hesed is the loving loyalty of a husband and wife who faithfully keep their marriage vows for 50 years. That's Hesed. Hesed is the undying love that would cause a father or a mother without even a thought to lay down their life for their child. That's Hesed. Hesed is the love that faithfully causes, causes a friend to faithfully keep his word to his friend, though it costs him everything. That kind of loyalty, that's Hesed. Hesed is God keeping his promises to us even when we break his covenant. Pure grace, pure mercy, Hesed. Hesed is the gospel. God's plan of salvation, God coming to save us in our undeserving condition. Hesed. No word could possibly encompass all of this. You actually know this word, uh, Psalm 136. You know that where it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. He made the sun and the moon and stars. His love endures forever. He gave us victory over our enemies. His love endures forever. That word love is the word hesed. His hesed endures forever. Or you know it in Psalm 63. Where, did, uh, where we read, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. What's better than life? God's chesed. No English word could possibly encompass all the meaning of this word. But what we see in the book of Ruth, in this chapter 2, is God's chesed being worked out in the lives of people. What we see here are examples of Hesed living on the part of Boaz and Ruth. So we learn from their behavior that the way God works is not just by providentially controlling the details, not just by zapping something from heaven with a bolt of lightning, but the way God works his plan is through the faithfulness, the hesed, the loyalty, the love, the grace, the kindness, the mercy of his people that reflect his love and grace and kindness and mercy. First we see it in the life of Ruth. In verse 11 and 12, Boaz commends Ruth for being so loyal to Naomi, for seeking the re her refuge in the Lord. Let me read it again, verse 11 and 12. Boaz replied, I've been told all about 
what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What is this loyalty? This selflessness? This faithfulness to the Lord? This concern for her mother-in-law? What is that that Ruth is known for already? Well, interestingly, in chapter 3, when Boaz refers back to this, he refers back to these actions of Ruth, and he calls them, he blesses her for her kindness, her chesed. And sure enough, when we look down through the story, that's what we find. We see what God's chesed looks like. As it's lived out in the struggle of one poor foreigner woman in the land. This is what it looks like to live out God's chesed in that situation. Uh, think of it through the story with me for, for a second. In verse uh, 2, Ruth takes the initiative, concerned for her mother-in-law, loyal to her mother-in-law, takes the initiative to go and find a way to provide for her. Verse 7, she humbly seeks permission to work in the fields, and then works diligently to buy up the opportunity she's been given. Verse 10, treats Boaz with respect and honor and humility, showing gratitude for the mercy shown her. Verse 13, again, is humble and thankful when she's honored. Verse 17, she diligently works till evening, finishing both the gleaning and the threshing of the grain. Verse 18, shows thoughtfulness to Naomi, even in holding back some of her lunch to bring it home to her mother-in-law. And in verse 23, respectfully listens and concedes to Naomi's wishes. You see, throughout the story, God's hesed is being modeled by Ruth in her faithfulness. Ruth emerges not as a Moabite woman who is banned from the sanctuary, like Deuteronomy 23 says. Ruth emerges as a true Israelite who walks in who reflects the love and grace of God. By the way, that I think is why she can marry Boaz. Though Deuteronomy 23 forbids a Moabite to be in this relationship, yet she can marry Boaz later because she's not a Moabite. The concern was not a racial concern. The concern was that the Moabites worshipped other gods. But Ruth has become the true Israelite who walks in the covenant faithfulness of the God under whose wings she has sought refuge. And God works his saving plan through her faithfulness. Then we're given another example in in, in Boaz. God's hesed is displayed in the life of Boaz. Actually, the picture here is even clearer, for Ruth knew very little about the Lord and walked in what she knew. But Boaz obviously knows God's covenant well and has been walking in it for some time. Now, we know that what we see in Boaz is an example of hesed because Naomi tells us in verse 20, The Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness. His hesed is the word. And when we look at the story, it's not hard to find examples. For example, in verse 8 and 9, he not only extends to Ruth the right to glean as required by the law, 
He goes beyond what was demanded and shows her mercy and kindness. She may work close to his servants. She may follow them from field to field. In fact, she may drink water that they drew for themselves. She may drink water when she's thirsty. Then in verses 14 to 16, he pours out even more generous kindness on on her. She's invited to sit and eat lunch with his field hands. Indeed, he personally makes sure she has enough to eat, some to take home. And And not only is she allowed to glean close to the workers, When she gets up and goes back to her work, he instructs his workers, you make sure that you leave something for her to glean. In fact, pull some stalks out and drop them where she'll have something to pick up. And he says to his men, don't you mess with her. You make sure she's protected. In fact, throughout this chapter, four times, he takes measures to protect her. Now, how do we account for this kindness, this mercy, this generosity, this protection, this care, which Boaz extends to Ruth? How do we account for that? David Atkinson, in his little commentary, has a great statement. Let me read it to you. What we're seeing in Boaz is an indication of his gracious generosity which by going beyond the letter of the law concerning gleaning, nevertheless demonstrated the spiritual concern for which that law was framed, namely, that love for God is expressed in care and provision for the poor. By so doing, Boaz is sharing something of the character of God made known more fully for us in Christ. In other words, God is working his asset, not by lightning bolts from heaven, but by the loving kindness and faithfulness and generosity and graciousness and mercy of Boaz. Dear people, you see, this story is not just a story that becomes a love story about Boaz and Ruth. This story is a story about the love of God. His mercy, his generosity, his kindness, his grace, his faithfulness to his covenant promises. Now, God could have written us a huge, ten-volume theology book about that and said, here, you want to know about my Hesed? Read it. But he didn't. He wrote a love story. He said, you want to see what my Hesed looks like? Look at this. This is what it looks like for the wealthy, prominent man. This is what it looks like for the poor, penniless woman. Here's my grace, my mercy, my kindness being worked out in their actions. Of course, if we want to see it perfectly, we have to read the Gospels. For there we read of Jesus, who is the Hesed of God, the covenant faithfulness of God in human flesh. Has brought to us salvation, not just kindness, salvation. And how does he work today now? How does his spirit work? Well, he's reproducing in us the character of Christ, conforming us to the image of his Son. And what will that look like? 
it will look like you and me living in Hesed that mirrors God's Hesed, showing kindness, being merciful, being full of grace, being loyal even when it hurts, God working through you and your faithfulness. Oh, there's lots more to the story. We didn't even mention several things. Ruth is successful in her gleaning. We're told at the end of the chapter she brings home about an ephah of grain. That's about a bushel, about 30 pounds of grain. Just to put that in perspective, one commentator that I read, uh, Robert uh, Hubbard, points out that in the, old, <coughs> in the old Babylonian period, the ration, the daily ration of a male worker rarely exceeded two pounds a day. Ruth brought home a half month's wages because of her diligent devotion to her mother-in-law and because of Boaz's mercy and kindness to her. God's hesed's like that, isn't it? It's not where we expected to find it, but it's beyond our wildest dreams. As we sang that first song, the, 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 our dreams, the dreamer's dreams, were just not wild enough to imagine what God's mercy would look like when it appeared in Christ Jesus. Well, there's more to the story to come. We'll pick it up next time. But let's walk away this morning with these two truths. God works in the details. He owns them all. Don't ever think that something about your life has escaped his notice. That's the turf in which God works things out in the details of life. What looks to be like accidents, what looks to be like chance, what looks to be like misfortune, or failure, as well as success, God works in the details. And secondly, God works through your faithfulness. It matters what you do, because that's how God works. That's how God advances his kingdom. That's how God shows his kindness. That's how God displays his grace, by it being embodied in you and me. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful story, and it's good to reflect on it and to think about it. But thank you, Lord, for your own love and grace to us, which we see reflected in the characters of this story and the unfolding of this tale. Oh, Lord, I pray that we might know what it is to be people conformed to your image and, and displaying before the world uh, uh, nothing less than the very character of our God, the mercy and grace of Jesus. Lord, we can't just conjure this up. We naturally are very self-centered, doing our own thing and uh, caring nothing about uh, anybody else or about you. But Lord, I pray that you would work in us and renew us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.